Welcome to this week's podcast of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the middle of the heartland debate politics, news, and current events. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. And Craig, it's been an action-packed week. We have a lot of primaries to shift through and to analyze. But to start, just moments ago, the Democrats in the Senate that had this long voterama that started uh, yesterday evening, Saturday, uh, trying to pass this landmark mm-hmm. climate change um, tax legislation, uh, as well as uh, giving Medicare the ability to negotiate uh, prescription drug coverage at uh, prescription drug prices, I should say. There's a lot in this legislation. It's probably the most far-reaching we've had in decades. And it was a slog to get to this point because under the rules of reconciliation, um, they have uh, they uh, very little uh, headway to basically land this airplane. Yeah, you could, couldn't lose anybody. They can't lose anybody. It's the 50 votes plus Kamala Harris is the VP. And the way this process works is the other side can offer amendment after amendment. And the problem is if any Democrats would get picked off during that amendment process, what happens is if the legislation changes substantially, any piece of it, that could cause everything to fall apart because yeah. the House has already passed this legislation. Uh, or I'm sorry, the House, it's going to go back to the House to be passed yeah. this next Friday. But the House has already agreed to this very specific constrained yeah. set of um, uh, legislation. And so any changes to it could jeopardize the chances yeah. of it passing and, the House. And these changes, a lot of times, they're poison pills from the opposite yes. party. They're either a to get Democrats to vote for things that they can use against him. Like Ted Cruz had some amendment that we can't sell oil to China. Right. That was a strictly political vote. But it's to make them take uncomfortable votes. But yes. the Democrats held together, and I should say it wasn't only the Republican side. You had Bernie Sanders who was causing some headaches oh. with trying with some of these amendments too. Ber- Bernie's gonna <laughs> he's Ber- gonna do gonna what Bernie, Bernie does, right? If, if you know you have no chance to get any of these amendments through through the normal process, this is your one shot to do it. Yeah. The, the the Democrats held together. They did not get picked off, but they also did make some modifications in this bill from what was first proposed last week, I believe. They did and I would probably dub those the cinema compromises. Uh, that's where I'm headed. Is because cinema. so uh, it's interesting to note if we want to back up. So it was due to some political uh, gamesmanship and political breakthrough, legislative breakthrough um, on the part of Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer that got us to this place where this became a reality. Kristen Cinema was not included on those discussions, and reports said that she was kind of peeved about that. So she decided to take her time. She took a full week to wade through this yeah. legislation, which is why we had this on a Saturday. Uh, and she had a, a handful of issues. Um, one of them was with what they called closing the um, uh, interest loophole yeah. uh, for uh, basically capital gains. Yeah. So she this didn't, she eliminated it. She just narrowed it a little. Narrowed bit. it. Yeah. So this impacts private equity companies who basically are taxed at a rate of twenty percent right yeah. now, rather than a full income tax rate of thirty-seven percent or higher. Uh, so under the legislation init- originally, they would have um, more of them would have been taxed at yeah. that higher income bracket. She was able to narrow that down so um, more of them are uh, not going to be taxed at that rate. So one way could say that to say that is Kristen Cinema used her power as a senator to narrow the the application of a tax that only applies to head funds. Yes, that can't be very popular. With the American people or the people in Arizona, I wouldn't think. No, and again, that's interesting. Um, and this is 
uh, been typical with her when it comes to hedge funds and some yep. of those donors. She has kind of consistently done that time and time again. And then I believe she also, um, there was some last minute drama today with the corporate minimum tax yes. at 15% because she was open to voting for an amendment that was put forward by John Thune of South Dakota, which would have narrowed that as well, the yeah. application of that, which again would have taken more private equity companies and hedge funds, removed them from being a part of yeah. that. Um, so that was also where she was able to extract some concessions. And then the last thing I want to say that didn't really have anything to do with cinema, uh, but the, the Republicans had also uh, put forward, the parliamentarians struck down um, the uh, lowered insulin prices yeah. that would have affected private insurance. So that is no longer part of that. And then um, it, it's also the gap has been narrowed with the uh, reduction of prices for private insurance on other drugs as well. Yeah. Um, it doesn't apply to Medicare, so the rules still apply. So there's still the requirement that insulin be reduced for Medicare. So if you're getting your insulin paid through Aetna or Blue Cross Blue right. Shield, this does not apply to you. It does not, no. And that is strictly on the Republican Party, 100%. Yep, so that is something Democrats can run on. They put forward that amendment. That's going to be a really nice ad in a couple months. So so that is uh, is it. But yeah, I think, um, but besides that, uh, what we just uh, recounted, the legislation retained much of its core uh, components. So that's really promising. And we can't understate that... particularly on being able, the government being able to negotiate prices on behalf of Medicare. This is something Democrats have advocated for for decades and haven't been able to pass, and now it's going to become law. Yeah. So the politics, real quick, about cinema. So we've always said cinema is just a here for performance art. We weren't quite sure who was he, he was performing for. Now we 100% know. Uh, cinema will get primaried. She will get defeated. She'll be a one-term senator. She's out of the party. The party will absolutely turn their back on her. They will hold her out as somebody that, yes, we had to make these concessions to get her on board. We really didn't want to do this. And Kristen Cinema is no longer part of the cool kids or the inner circle, if she ever was, with the Democrats. And there will be no help sent her way when she is primaried. Yeah, and for- she will receive no money and no help from the DNCCC. Yeah. So uh, I assume uh, – does Arizona not have open primaries, though? That's the only thing that I think could cause a wrinkle here is if they have open primaries. I'm not sure what their primary system is. All I know is it's going to be made abundantly clear to her she is not welcome back. She is not going to get any support, and she probably needs to find something else to do. And I don't think Kristen Sinema – I'm not even sure she wants to run again. Her performance is over. It seems like she did the thing she was there to do. I don't really even know if she wants to come back. Yeah. And now I could be completely wrong. I've never gotten a feel for cinema because cinema never shows her hands, never plays her cards until she has to. Right. Like on this one where she jumped in, I'll say it again. She narrowed a tax that only applies to, to, to equity hedge funds. That's it. So I, I think her whole performance throughout Build Back Better and her whole first two years as a senator, she is going to get primaried. I believe she will lose, and she will be out of the Democratic Party She's going to get a lot of corporate money, though, behind her campaign. So she will be well-funded, I think, by a lot yeah. of corporate interests. So that's the thing to watch. She is up, I think, in 2024. Is that right? Because I think she was yes. elected in 2018. Yep. Okay. Yep. I, 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 think she, I, I think she's gone. But, yeah. but 
we, we, we said last week, cinema would fall in line. She's not a 51. She's not the, she's not the bulwark that Manchin was. No. At this, that I do think it was, it was somewhat annoying, though, that there was this last-minute drama today sure. on the corporate minimum that's tax. Very because Kristen Cinema. she read the legislation it's, all week. This was a right. new. So it's she waits until the very last second. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> that was her last you know, number. That was the last time. I, yeah. I expect we'll never hear anything from Kristen Cinema. Again, because she's never struck me as somebody who really wants to be in the Senate, knows what a senator is, or wants to participate with the Democratic Party at all. So I'm glad that she got whatever she got. She's on board. She's behind us now, and we can just stop talking about her at all. The other mean key player in this, Joe Manchin, did you see him on the Sunday shows last Sunday? I did, yeah. Joe Manchin strikes me as a guy who thinks he's going to be running for president one day. The way he's talking about this, I mean, he is, I mean... uh, from a marketing perspective, I mean, been marketing this very yeah. aggressively and standing behind it. it. Not not lukewarm at all, which is, I think, surprising to me. Yeah. Because if you look in the past on legislation where he's been a critical vote on, even if he's backed it, eventually, like, he's always had lukewarm support. Not with this. I mean, he is really going on this yeah. almost, like, road tour on yeah. the national shows of and promoting the, uh, it. And the uh, electoral count bill is him and Susan Collins. Yeah. If he can pull that off, too, Joe Manchin, in in very quick order, has kind of risen from the absolute bottom of the Democratic Party to somebody. I don't think he's a presidential candidate, but he is certainly somebody that's got some strange new respect among Democrats and probably is going to leverage that moving moving forward. Yeah, no, I agree. And again, I think he's one of those where he would have very strong potential on the national level. But again, the way our primary system is, it's very difficult for him to get through Democratic primaries, particularly in many states. Yeah. So that's where he's going to, you know, run into some barriers. A couple of things, technical things about this process. One, I didn't understand why the Dems didn't just do what the Republicans did to the Senate pa- parliamentarian. Vote, when, uh, uh, just fire, fire, fire the parliamentarian. Find somebody who does. That's I don't know what, why they have that's it what, either. That's what so what we're talking said. about is um, a Trump's signature tax cut was done through reconciliation. The first parliament, the par- par- Senate parliamentarian, parliamentarian, parliamentarian. Yeah. That is a tough word to say. That basically, this is the person who interprets and tells you the rules and procedures of the Senate. Yes. When he told them they couldn't do that, they just fired him and hired somebody else. So there Which are I didn't ways know they around. Could do. And so I didn't know they we could learned do that, that at that time. So again, because this same parliamentarian has also been a foil at other times for the Democrats on legislation. Yeah. And they have not fired her, which is a little bit surprising <laughs> to me. I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's always that's always let you know you're in a good uh, legislative process. If you don't get you what you want, you can just fire somebody and keep hiring right. people until you do. I mean, I'm glad this bill got passed. I think this bill has some some of the potential to do some good stuff in it. I, I think the climate bill uh, or the climate side of this bill, again, this was only incentives, no taxes. That That's what can pass right now. So now that that framework has been established, maybe there's some more things that we can do about that. Because there's this very tiny amount of existing alternative energy incentives that we already had in place were antiquated. Yeah. I mean, most of those provisions only referred specifically to solar, not to other types of alternative energy. And they were very limited in scope and made it very difficult to really incentivize the full yeah. spectrum of different uh, alternative fuels and, and uh, that are on the market today. So this is a huge step forward in that regard. I don't see any any effort or any long, any short-term uh, impact or relief to inflation. 
Uh, Bernie Sanders had to remind everybody when he gave his little diatribe that this really isn't any uh, inflation reduction. There's really no parts of this that will immediately have any impact on inflation. Yeah. Thanks, Bernie. You know, because that's the way to be a team player right when we're <laughs> He's crossing, never been a team player. Right when we're ready yeah. to spike the ball, Bernie has to get up and take a shit on something, which is always what Bernie does. And maybe that's why Clyburn just decided you couldn't be president, Bernie. I don't. I don't know. Well, Maybe the rumor is that Bernie wants to run for president again. Of so. course. Of course. I mean, he's he only does. 81. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> At this, I mean, he's only had one heart attack yeah. or heart problem. I mean, that doesn't put him out anymore. I mean, we, so. we need a, you know, geriatric race. So get all the, Why not? you know, so, 80 year olds, 81 year olds in there. Brandon, you, you have, you have worked in Washington, right? Yes. Okay. So. What 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 struck me this week is how much that Congress is like high school and how quickly positions can change from you're feeling good, you're in power, you're part of the cool kids club, club. you're only like three bad things away from happening to being completely put back on your heels. And it feels like that's where the Republicans are with this fury of, of legislation that's passed over the last weekish or so. It's really been, I think, just quite amazing. I mean, this has been the best run that Biden has had because mm-hmm. we, were, we already talked about the chips bill, the semiconductor yep. bill, which again was a brilliant stroke of genius, one of the few times that you know McConnell was bamboozled (laughs) so I mean that passed we finally had the passage of the most far-reaching veterans health care bill that we've had in decades um, with the burn pit issue Uh, so that is a huge victory we finally got that bipartisan through you had the killing of Al Zahiri yeah um, that's big earlier last week too and this is was Osama bin Laden's number two right-hand guy and somebody who's you know been on the target list for over 20 years now and he's finally been killed. So you've had just this succession of good news, but particularly on the legislative side, um, and even if we want to go back and include earlier in the summer, the, again, very limited but still significant gun reform legislation, because that was the first gun reform uh, legislation that had been passed in well over 30 years. So that's something remarkable. Let's talk about the PAC Act, the PACT Act a little bit. Yes. This is the... the, uh, um, uh, the burn pit, the burn pit issue, yeah. yeah. And what this does is it gives a whole bunch of money to veterans around medical issues, right? And Long it, overdue, and it yeah. acknowledges that hey, your 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 medical conditions are caused by some of the things that you encountered while in in the military. And let me give a big finger to Rand Paul and a giant fu who said the reason he didn't vote for this bill was there was no concrete proof that these men's injuries were caused by burn pits. So he can go suck a giant one. The great thing about the this bill is just we talked to you last week about Trump's hostage video face. Yeah. Nobody's is better than Mitch McConnell. And he had to use it twice, like back to back. Because first this bill did not pass because the Democrats moved the four hundred billion dollars in spending from like discretionary to mandatory, basically. Right. So they increased spending on veterans by $400 billion a year annually. Let me say this again, because this is going to become important really quick. Yes. What the Democrats did is now they have to spend $400 billion a year in the budget every year on our military's health. Brandon, why did the Republicans say no to that? 
I mean, it was the uh, huge PR nightmare <laughs> for them. I mean, you have to remember too that Republicans are always the loudest when it comes to support for the military, it's part of your brand. support for veterans. You know, they've been on the bandwagon for a long time, and rightfully so, on reforming the VA system with all of the issues that it has in the bureaucracy. And so, for them to vote against this, I mean, the backlash was immediate and immediate. swift. I mean, veterans were pissed off about yep, this. As they should, you know, their office uh, congressional offices were being overrun with phone calls and emails. And so I knew it was only a matter of time before they'd have uh, another vote on this and go the other way. And yeah. it was it was quick. And it, again, it just proved how uh, politically uh, detrimental this was and what a, a just a huge blunder it was for them to go this route. I mean, there was nothing strategic no. in this at all. If you want to make the case we shouldn't be moving from discretionary to mandatory spend for budget issues, I'll listen to that, but just not on this bill. Right. Because there's no way you can say they don't deserve this. And no. if this is overspending, I don't care because this is the one spot we should overspend on each time, every time, all well, the time. Well, and it becomes a point of hypocrisy because then Republicans can be called out like you supported all of the this massive increases in defense spending year after year after yes. year. Uh, you know, and, and while that wasn't mandatory, that was exponentially far and above what yeah. Democrats are asking for is the mandatory spend level for veterans. So, again, there isn't a strong leg to stand on with that argument because these are the people that have sacrificed their health, their lives for us that are, you know, and, and there's a strong strain in America that says that we should be doing all we can for them and taking care of them to the utmost of our ability. And I wonder, I wonder what calculations the, the Republicans made that the American people are more interested and get more fired up and support um, uh, spending policy more than they do benefits for veterans. I just don't understand the calculation. Right. That that would move the needle or, you know, again, because one, I mean, one is very powerful and very emotional and it's hard to get people, uh, emotional about spending. I mean, you know, that's just not going to, especially, and the American people are cynical. They know at this point that both parties spend to oblivion mm -hmm. on their own agenda and their own priorities. What's another $400 billion at this point? They're going to say, well, if we should be spending on anybody, it should be veterans. And so for Republicans to make this case, it just doesn't come across as uh, sincere by any measure. So McConnell had to give the hostage video twice, once when they voted it down, when they were explaining why, and once when they passed it again. Right. And I don't think anything changed in the bill, did it, when it passed? No, it's basically the same bill. It's not like they went back and reclassified that money. They did not, because they did have a vote on some of those amendments, like the Toomey Amendment that got voted down. So none of, you know, it was the same bill, incidentally. But again, this was also the same bill that Republicans who had voted no the second time had voted yes the first time on. So this was the third time where they came back home. Um, and it was a very lopsided vote. I think there were only 11 Republicans that voted no in the end uh, as well. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, that was, uh, I think, just a demonstration of, like, what not to do in politics. So I'm going for. Have you been on the Hill before when it's obvious your party is just discombobulated? We, we, are, we have had a bad two weeks. What we thought we could do, maybe we can't. Some of the messaging that we thought we were hitting on is not yeah. where we thought we were all together. We've made some horrible mistakes here, and politics changes quickly. Is there? Is it a feel? Is it because 
the Republicans still have a whole lot going for them. They have history on their side. They have Biden's low ratings on their side. There is no evidence that they don't take the House back and at least a dogfighter's chance in the Senate. I guess what I'm trying to figure out in Washington, how does that change so fast? And can can political winds and mood, can it change in two weeks? Oh, absolutely. Can you go from we're going to blow out to, oh, shit, I don't know what we're going to do that fast? I, we have at this point – you know, two, almost three months before the November election, which is like an eternity in politics. So much can happen that time. And so we always get trapped in the scenario where the pundits and prognosticators look at the writing on the wall for that moment in time and say, well, you know, this is it. You know, Republicans are going to take back the House. Everything is set in stone when it's not. I mean, so much can change. And I think we're in this period right now where there's a lot of shifting of the sands underneath our feet. And so that isn't to say that Democrats are going to retain the House, but I think there's a great likelihood now that Republican gains in the House will be more limited than what we thought. Sure. They're not going to have, you know, 30, 40 vote margins, potentially. They may just have somewhere between a 10 and 20 yeah. vote margin. So again, all of that matters from a marginal standpoint, an incremental standpoint, like how many seats they actually are able to get back at the end. And I think that's what we're seeing play out with what's happening with the legislation and with, um, you know, some of the, the other things that happened this week, which we'll get to. I mean, anything that the Democrats can do to show competency in government, the ability to pass legislation, the ability to explain legislation, the ability to put legislation in ways that don't add to the deficit, putting together things that pay for themselves, putting together things that are popular. I think that— It's essentially taking the old Republican argument that we're the people that know how to govern, we're the responsible adults in the room. That's the argument that Democrats have to maintain now, going into November. And then pointing at the Republicans and say, not only do they not get it, they don't don't do it when they're here, it's because they don't want to. They're actively trying to control the thing that most of them hate. I wish we could have some easy way to, to t- tally out with um, – if we take Trump's presidency, for example, his major legislation accom- accomplishment, I'm guessing, was the tax cuts. Right. That was about it. Yeah. He really had nothing else beyond that. Other than Kardashian's grandma's crime bill and some other stuff. Uh, so you, you had that. Yeah. Was, uh, the tax cuts and uh, – what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, but no, I mean, that was, that was basically it. So now of- walk me back through Republican presidents. I can remember, I can almost remember each Republican president doing some sort of tax legislation. That is their signature go-to move. Right. Other than that, what was the last major piece of legislation? Something that's on par with the bills that we saw passed today. When's the last time they've even done anything like that in the legislation? Well, I mean, I would I would have to go back to the George W. Bush era when there was the complete uh, the creation of the Homeland Security Department and reform sure, of. But that 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 wasn't organic to him. That was a right. reaction to nine eleven. Right, but he, I, didn't, he didn't walk into office saying this he, is part he of was my going agenda. to do that. Yeah, yeah. I can't True. think of the last Republican president that had a robust economic or any type of legislative agenda that they then executed on when they were president. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I'm trying to think if there was uh, anything during the Reagan years where— I mean, he redid the tax code, but we're right, right back on that one issue. Yeah. If I'm Democrats, there's got to be an ad that just says, you know what they're going to do. Not a lot. And if they do tie to do something, you know what it's going to be. Although the first so-called uh, you know, amnesty happened during Reagan's presidency. 
um, <laughs> which just shows you how. Well, I don't think the Republicans are going to be breaking that up. Anytime, no, that's not uh, something they want to talk about anytime soon. But you're right. I think that's. I forgot to all so much, and there was also a major vote this week uh, to admit Sweden and Finland into NATO. Yeah, which is huge as well. And you had one vote, oh, one yeah. senator vote against that. Josh Hawley, Missouri. Hey, his book Manhood comes out. I think <laughs> next week. Are you gonna you gonna read that? Oh. <laughs> I, I would rather shove a I fork will never, in my yeah, eye. I am not going to read that book, yeah. Brendan, why is it that... Manhood from the guy who ran away uh, from the insurrectionists that he was cheering on just moments I'm, prior. I'm all good with saying we need to start a conversation about manhood in the United States, and what it means to be a man has certainly changed a lot. It is going to change more. But can you think of a single man who has tried to promote their ideas of what is masculine... You know, behavior that is masculine that hasn't immediately gotten 100% creepy and gross. No. I can't think of a single one, and I suspect Holly will go back right down that Well, road. and again, and I've said this before, I think when it comes to, like, masculinity and, like, the good kind, not the toxic kind, like, those who exhibit that don't have to talk about it all the time. It's interesting to note that those people that focus on it and talk about the most incessantly tend to be the people who don't even exhibit it at all. Like, yeah. it's, it's a conundrum. Like Tucker Carlson, who had, like, a whole segments on his show about masculinity he's the furthest thing from a masculine guy he's never served in the military he's none he's never done anything of significance to require like hard labor hard work i mean he's the privileged son of you know a rich heiress but yet these are the people showing laser light on his balls at that right i mean but so it's it's highly ironic and the same thing with josh holly josh holly grew up very privileged went to private schools his whole life i mean you know again this is not somebody who exhibits masculinity, not even in um, conduct or anything that he can point to. Yeah, but, but again, he's writing the book on it because it's all part of the self-promotion and the agenda that will like lead into the presidency. Also, this is kind of a tangent, but I, I thought it was funny. Every once in a while, a politician will say something or indirectly say something that everybody knows is true, but you don't say if you're a politician. <laughs> and then they have to you know, basically backtrack and say, I didn't mean that. So that happened this week. Did you? I don't know if you saw the thing with Tim Scott's new book. So Tim Scott, no. Republican from South Carolina, running for president, you know, doing the circuit in Iowa, New Hampshire. So he has his new book out, which if you, it's about like his time in the Senate, what he's learned, blah blah blah. Really, all this book serves. The only purpose it serves is yeah. to launch his presidential yeah. race. So in the book, like at the acknowledgement sections of the beginning, there's actually a line that says, "And I've written this book to launch my." Uh, presidency uh, in 2024. Okay, so he just comes right out and says it. Well, get this. So it says it in there. And so, of course, the press noticed it and called it out. And he said it was a mistake. That should have been in there. My publisher made that mistake. Publisher said that'll be redacted in later editions. So again, I don't know if that was meant to be in there or not. But regardless, like it's the first time we've seen a politician put that in a book when we all know it's true that that's the reason they put these books out. But that's interesting. Two men who are obviously running for president have decided, much like Barack Obama did, that they're going to start their campaign with a book. With a book, yeah. Isn't it interesting? I don't know what topic Tim Scott's book is, but it says a whole lot about Josh Hawley that he's playing the manhood card. Yeah. And uh, uh, what type of politics he's going to practice, well, just who like he's he, going to model himself after, and what population he's going for. Just like his vote against Finland and Sweden going into NATO. Uh, again, this has a track well, with his earlier Brandon, votes. Brandon, that, that takes our minds off China. 
I mean, we can't so do two things at once, Brandon. Oh, no, we can't, obviously. Well, and China was still a threat a couple of years back in 2019 when he voted to admit Montenegro into NATO. I, he voted affirmative then, but now he's not voting to admit Finland and Sweden when the threat is more real because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It makes no sense other than he's trying to stake out differences with his potential Republican opponents yeah. in the primary. And I think he's trying to wall himself off for the nationalist wing of the GOP and the more kind of pro-Putin, pro-Russia, more ambivalent, Ukraine ambivalent wing to say, look, I stood up against admitting, expanding NATO. Josh Hawley needs to look at the three people Trump has nominated to run for Senate. And the biggest problem that Oz and Vance are having is that they're fakers. They're pretenders. Oz is just a carpetbagger from from New Jersey. I don't know if J.D. Vance is even running anymore. He's out of money. They haven't seen him on the trail. Nobody really even knows what's happened to to, to J.D. Vance. A piece of advice to Josh Hawley. There's two things the American people will never elect in politics. One is a fool. The second is a faker. You're from Missouri. Stop running around in, in you know, those tight muscle polo shirts or whatever the shit you wear. Yeah. You know, come on. Look the part. Know your state. This is, this is not going where you think this is going to go. Nobody cares about your, 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 your thoughts on manhood. Nobody is going to change their views on you. And you're never going to be the president of the United States because you're simply not likable enough. People don't like no. you. And, and yeah, and you again, can't overcome that because you're an asshole. Well, and he, he is he has an ego issue that so many have once they get to DC. They just assume that yeah. you know they're able to to translate their success up until that point into broader national success, and that's not going to happen for him. Is this the same book, by the way, that uh, was supposed to come out that the publisher had stopped the publication back on January sixth? I, I hope not. I hope it was something more important than this piece of shit. Because he also we, had a we book. got into a fight over this Holly's book about masculinity. Well, I, unless you, I mean, did he have another book then? I mean, really. I, I mean, he no, can't be that prolific. Has be, it has yeah. to be the same book. Oh, good God. <laughs> so well, let's wrap up with the bill. I think the bill overall is a positive. It is, I like yeah. the things that, that this bill, along with the CHIPS bill, uh, I, I don't know if it has any impact on inflation, especially inflation is calculated in two ways, core inflation and then gas and food. Gas and right. food is taken out because they're day-to-day commodities. The thing that has to happen is gas and food has to drop to a certain percentage where people are comfortable to it by October-ish for the Democrats to to have a chance to be within spitting distance in the House. Right. They'll hold the Senate thanks to Trump because, again, he threw up three shitty candidates. And the reality is if they lose one seat in Georgia, the, 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 the Republicans, and they lose that seat, Oz's seat in Pennsylvania, they can't take the, House, they can't take the Senate back. Yeah. So we're going to hold the Senate thank, thanks for Trump again. This bill I don't believe is going to impact – the gas or food inflation in a way that has an impact. And I don't think it's going to have a direct impact on the midterms, except to raise people's overall positive feelings about the Democrats as a party that does want to govern and can actually get something done. And I think that's, that goes into the, the speech, the main theme of what the Democrats are pushing. So overall, I think this is a positive for the Democrats and a positive for our, ourselves in the midterms. Yeah. And I think you can't, underestimate the 
totality of this legislation, what they were able to do in this political environment with having that razor-thin margin, which makes it so difficult to pass anything yeah. of substance. So, yes, there are those who could have, who will say that it should have been bigger, it should have included more, it should have you know been more money. But at the end of the day, this is super significant. And I think beyond people forget just a couple of weeks ago, we thought this was dead. Yeah. That basically it was, you know, DOA because Manchin had indicated that, you know, he wasn't going to compromise. So we Democrats were headed to the midterms with just this mindset that this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. There's not going to be anything between now and then that's going to change the calculus. And it shows you again in a few days how everything can change. Before we move on to the elections, Brandon, this sounds weird of me to say, but is Biden doing exactly what he said he would do, delivering bipartisan legislation? Well, I mean, it's uh, I mean, definitely on the first two. There's bipartisan three, parts yeah. to some of the legislation there he's is. passed. Well, and, and you have like the CHIPS bill and, you know, the PACT bill. I mean, those are very bipartisan. The first COVID, well, the first COVID bill well, wasn't, but the infrastructure the bill. The infrastructure bill He's was. passed three major pieces of legislation and if you have with the, the help of Republicans. And if you have the Electoral Count Act, the Reform Act, if, if that passes, that that'll be through, very bipartisan. I mean, I don't know how, I guess that's what bipartisanship looks like. That's in what it's supposed to be, yeah. Era. Hmm. Let's move over to the elections and what happened on, on Tuesday. Um the, and the biggest, well, the biggest shock is going to be Kansas. And then we can yeah. get to the other states. Yeah. So the amendment in Kansas, I think, and reading the national tea leaves, you had national media that were shocked by this, although I don't think they should have been shocked. And so I'm going to take a little bit of credit because I predicted turnout was going to be 49%. <laughs> and you know Kansas politics. And I know Kansas politics very well. For those that don't know, I'm a political consultant here in Kansas. I do a lot of work for local candidates. So Kansas... Leading up to Election Day, we had this massive influx in turnout. We actually had advanced voting at record numbers, and we started to see this on the ground, particularly in populous counties. Johnson County, which is suburban stronghold outside of Kansas City, has one-fifth of the entire state's population. The advanced numbers that were pouring in a week before Election Day surpassed uh, the 2018 August primary, um, and this was without any election day votes having been cast yet. So we started seeing this dynamic play out uh, with um, this surge of interest, and you had both sides spending millions of dollars. And I think the fact of the number, you had over 900,000 people vote in the August primary in Kansas. So that eclipsed turnout in the 2010 general election. Think about the 2010 midterm November election where Republicans swept the U.S. House, um, first election after Obama. This election had higher turnout than that November general. The turnout in this primary was... uh, three times higher than the 2014 August primary and two times higher than the August 2018 primary in Kansas, which was a big governor's race on the ballot as well as a U.S. Senate race. So that cannot be understated in terms of the significance of the the turnout that we saw with this uh, primary. And you also have to realize that there are about 750,000 that voted in the Democratic gubernatorial primary in this race. Mm -hmm. So you had 900,000 on the ballot question. So you had hundreds of thousands of people that turned out that are not affiliated with either party that either only had this on the ballot or maybe had a couple of nonpartisan local races to vote on. So that was also a big deal. So a bunch of people turned out just to vote for this. 
Uh, yes, just for this alone. Yeah. Uh, so the other interesting thing about this race is that uh, in Johnson County alone, over 30% of unaffiliated voters turned out for a primary. And a typical primary, Johnson County will get single digits in terms of unaffiliated voters, it turns out. Democrats statewide and in Johnson County turned out at a higher rate. In Johnson County, 67% of Democrats turned out to vote versus 62% of Republicans. Again, that's a seismic shift in the yeah. electorate because Democrats in, in Kansas usually don't have that many primaries to vote on. The reason that this was on the ballot in the August primary was a cynical move by Republicans in the state house because they knew that it was a low turnout primary, that all the Republicans would turn out to vote, no Democrats were yep. unaffiliated, and they could just push it through. And then the other thing was this won in 19 counties. To put that in perspective, um, Joe Biden only won about five or six counties in Kansas. Uh, so our governor, Laura Kelly, when she won the Democrat in 2018, she won nine counties. This won in 19. And so that includes 10 counties that where Trump actually prevailed in 2020. Uh, so Sedgwick, where Wichita is, Harvey, Celine, Cowley, Greenwood, Leon, Geary, Crawford, Miami, Franklin, Leavenworth, Jefferson. And then... Um, so not only did this support, or I should say the no vote, um, that supported abortion uh, surpass Biden's totals in all of these counties, including these red counties, but also in the very blue counties in places like Johnson County and Douglas County, where Lawrence is and Wyandotte, uh, the vote threshold was astronomical, 68% voting it down in Johnson County, 74% in Wyandotte, 81% in Douglas, which you never see for any yeah. issue or any candidate in an election. That's where KU's located. That's where, exactly, University of Kansas and Douglas yeah. County is the most liberal blue part of the state. So the other thing that I found very interesting, that even if you look, assume that everybody who voted in the gubernatorial primary on the ballot last week had also voted for the ballot measure, that still leaves more than 250,000 no votes, roughly half of the no total that didn't come from Democrats. So half of that no vote didn't even come from Democrats, which means it came from unaffiliated and Republicans. And so then you look at the um, GOP gubernatorial primary for uh, on the Republican side, and if you look at and assume that all of those people that voted for governor and the Republican primary also voted yes, that they were against abortion, that still leaves at least 75,000 people who voted for uh, Republican for governor but voted no on the ballot. So it shows you the cross... Uh, sectional support yeah. for the on the no side and this coalition that was created and a testament to what happened on this issue. And you and I were talking offline about this. There's confusion because there's this need to see. And again, we're very um, kind of like white and black, very kind of in the box oriented with how we view politics today. But seeing Kansas as a conservative state, when many people who know Kansas well would argue yeah. Kansas is a Republican state is not necessarily a conservative state. And you see that and. For example, even though Kansas has voted for a Republican in every presidential election since 1964, uh, it tends to split its tickets. We've had more Democratic governors over the past couple of decades. We have had uh, elected a lot of moderate Republicans, particularly from Johnson County, that tend to be much more moderate to liberal on social issues. Mm -hmm. So there's this dynamic that plays out, and people often refer to Kansas as a three-party state. You have the Democrats, you have conservative Republicans, and you have moderate Republicans. And many times when Democrats have been governor, uh, they have been able to get legislation through with the support of this cross-party coalition of moderate Republicans and Democrats in the state house. So those are the dynamics you have in Kansas. And on the abortion issue, we have elected senators who have been pro-choice in the past, like Nancy Castlebaum and, and, and others. 
So, but I think what struck me most about this election was the margin, because even yeah. I didn't see an 18-point margin. This is margin. blowout territory. Yeah. I, I texted you and Jason the night saying, I thought Kansas and Alabama were like equal partners. <laughs> no, no. On the deep red conservative scale, I thought Mississippi, Alabama, Kansas, they were all, they were all on the same plateau with each other. So part of, I think, the, the country's reaction to what happened in Kansas is not understanding what, what, what you just laid out. There's been a lot of demographic shift in Kansas to around the Kansas City area. And I think we maybe said this on the mics last week, but once you get out of the Kansas City area, Kansas has very little population. small cities. It's almost all farm territory once you get out of the, the Kansas City area. There's Wichita and some other places, but there's not a lot of, of small urban areas in Kansas. It's so, Craig, to put rural. this in perspective, so once you get outside of Wichita, the 60 or so counties west yeah. of Wichita <laughs> have less than 20% of the state's okay. population. Okay, so, and that's 60 counties. That's a huge swath of land, yeah. but very little people. So if you're carrying 60% and higher in the six counties that connect to Kansas City, you, you've got the state, basically. Right. So this is what's so interesting about what happened, right? Because you didn't even need some of these rural counties to flip. So if you would have had the urban counties like Shawnee, where Topeka mm-hmm. is, Sedgwick, where Wichita is, Johnson, Wyandotte, Douglas, and so forth. If you would have had just those counties alone run up the margins that we saw last Tuesday, that would have probably been enough for this to squeak through and it would have won in the single digits. But then you layer on top of that these other counties like Leavenworth and Miami and some of these more rural counties on the eastern side, which always vote very strongly Republican, but voted no, this time around. Yeah. And that's where you get the lopsided 18-point margin yeah. win, the 150,000 plus votes. And then the other thing is the number of new voters. I don't know if you've seen the New York Times had the line graph showing the spike after the Dobbs decision yeah. and new voter registration in Kansas. Like, it's a straight line up. Like, there was a surge in new voters registering the vote who had been previously unregistered and turning out in this election who had never voted before, but they were so moved based on what happened with Dobbs. And so that was the other critical factor this had been scheduled long before Dobbs Mm -hmm. I mean going back to like before the pandemic but you know that changed everything I really do think that without Dobbs that this amendment could have passed because there would have just been less interest in it and less focus and you would have had a lot of pro-choice people that would have been more complacent and maybe would it have turned out or voted solely on this because they're like they would have looked at other issues and they would have been like it's not a big deal but the Dobbs decision changed everything I think and that, that made this front and center and so I think that really impacted also the trajectory of what we saw with the no vote. So Dems have every right to be excited about this uh, result from a a political perspective and what it's going to mean to them in the midterms. The the Republicans have had a little bit of a different reaction. So I think what I've seen is people's reaction break down into two different categories. One is people that were anti-Roe. They were anti the decision. The court decided this wrong. This whole idea of nine dudes sat down and made some sort of scale for trimesters of what life was viable and what that is ridiculous and should never have been done. If your objection to Roe was on the legal merits, then you're totally fine with this. This is exactly what you wanted. This is a state using a democratic process to decide this issue. You're like, this is why we did this. If you are pro-life, you have a very different outlook on what happened in, in Kansas. Because the national polling, what people have said... What people have said is what people's attitudes about abortion are actually came to fruition. Now, from, from the, the Republican side, I wouldn't freak out quite yet. 
First off, this was the easiest way to answer, to ask the question about abortion to get the result that you got. Yes. Should and a woman's right to an abortion be preserved? That's how they should have asked the damn questions of the way they did. Right, because the question essentially would Correct. have given it over to legislature to pass any law that could have That's restricted right. it completely. No specifics. Yeah. This wasn't, should we do a 20-week ban? This wasn't a 16-week. So we didn't even get into that that any of the stickiness. They just stayed at the high level that said, should a woman have the right to an abortion? It was basically, do you want to keep the status quo or hand yes. it to legislature? If you can ask it? the question that way, you're going to consistently see those results. Well, yeah. The I, issue I, is that's not always going to be that's, the question. That's not always going to be the question. I, I'll also argue that the language of the amendment itself, though, was very it was terrible. Con- convoluted. Yeah. It was actually written to be confusing and so it took a lot on the no side to explain this is what it really means. Yeah. It, it hands the power over to legislature. They can pass any law that includes no restrictions for rape, incest, yeah. life, or health of the mother. Like it really just – it takes the power away. And so th- I think that is – they did a good job of getting that message out. And I think the other thing to learn from this is how to talk about abortion because it doesn't change the fact that abortion is still very complicated. It's a very nuanced issue for yeah. most Americans. Most people don't line up on just a, a black and white side of the issue. And so the No Coalition was very specific in its messaging because it was building that coalition that included Republicans, unaffiliated, and libertarians. They referred to this as a mandate. Yes. That this would be a— Very interesting. Yes, yeah. government mandate, yeah. government interference in your personal decision, which, again, resonates with a lot of Republicans yeah. and, and libertarians. They uh, used personal interest stories of women who resembled suburban moms that suburban moms could relate to, married women, with yeah. children already who were put in a difficult situation where they had to have an abortion or they had mm-hmm. an entopic pregnancy and they had to terminate uh, that was out of their control to say, hey, this could be something that uh, the legislature bans because, again, there will be no check on that yeah. if we vote yes. I heard it described that they were respectful in their messaging. Yeah. And sometimes they Democrats weren't preachy. They weren't get a little out of bounds. With yes. Them. And there is a tendency sometimes among some Democrats to, you know, cheer on abortion or to celebrate it or act like it's this great thing when not everybody believes that. There is a coalition of people that think abortion should be safe, legal, and rare with some restrictions. But there are many in that coalition that are uneasy with this idea that we're just going to say abortion's the greatest thing and we're going to, yeah. And so this was very solid messaging. It's messaging that Democrats should emulate, especially in the wake of Roe, if they want to be able to retain that coalition and expand it in other parts of the country. The message that I saw that I really liked was trust women. Yeah. And this really hit me as somebody who's been married, because if anybody that's married knows your wife is your chief medical officer. There is no medical decision in that house for her, any of your children, or even yourself that she does not directly make. And if, if there's one person that every man trusts to make their own medical decisions, it's their wife. And I thought that, I thought that was a very good way to widen that message out and appeal to a broader audience yeah. than some of the traditional messages about the good of abortion or the celebration of abortion that Democrats have been guilty of delivering here in the last couple, last couple of years. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it was all about the messaging. And so that was called out several times. I mean, the kind of stroke of genius by the part of the no side. I think both of us agree that little difficult to take support for a, a broad based question about the right of abortion and have that mean this democratic candidate in this particular congressional district is now going to get votes basically because of Dobbs. 
That is a very long, complicated road to make. It is. And there's no evidence that it's happening. No. So I would, I would caution The challenge for Democrats here. is to bring abortion to the forefront and make it one of a handful of top issues that Democrats, uh, that the and American people there. vote on. It's, it's getting there. It's consistently climbing. But people forget that when most people go to the ballot box to vote for candidates, they vote according to a matrix of issues, right? There's yes. several issues percolating in their head, and they, they prioritize them, they organize them. And so for many of those issues who may even be pro-choice, you know, it may be inflation, or it may be uh, the economy that's the issue at the forefront for them based on their own personal circumstances. And actually, New York Times interviewed a a few voters in Kansas who even said this, uh, you know, when it came to November elections and said as much as that, said, well, I'm pro-choice, but I'm more concerned right now about, you know, the runaway inflation or yeah. the prices. So that's something for Democrats to keep in mind. It's very different when you're voting on an issue, like you said, that's just very cut and dry like this versus yeah. voting for candidates and trying to, you know, decide which issues matter yeah. most. Is it going to help? Yes. Does it turn the tide? No, no. It, it doesn't. And I think too, it this this question in November, I believe, is on the ballot in two different states, similar to Kansas. And I believe one of them, and the, the, the state of the name blew out of my mind, the name of the state. One of them has a more should we should women be allowed to have an abortion after a specific period of time? We're going to find out a lot more about how people that react to these things when they're on the ballot in November. This is one data point. It's a surprising data point. If you're a Democrat, it's a positive data point, but this isn't the whole story. And it's going to take this a few more times before we know kind of what political impact this is going to have. I believe this was the first time a, a population of Americans got to directly vote on abortion, I believe. I, uh, I, I think so. I'm trying to remember. I feel like in the last couple of years, or if there might have been another state that had a abortion vote, like Alabama or something. Maybe. And there's, I'd have to look into that. And I got to think, too, there's some ways they could have rephrased that question that may have come up with a very different outcome. So, again, this is a positive sign for the Democrats. Uh, it's a positive sign that polling about opinion on abortion seems to have manifested itself at the uh, at the polling place, which was good. But for my Democratic friends, wait and see, I think, is the is the word moving forward. So um, California and Colorado have questions on their ballot in November that would enshrine the right to an abortion in their state constitutions. Okay. So that's from the pro side. Well, those weren't okay. Those weren't very as exciting as I thought because those but will both be Kentucky actually has okay, something there we similar go. to Kansas, and uh, so that's no right to an abortion. Their constitutions are very similar to what Kansas yeah. voted on in twenty. Uh, so that's in November, and that may be. I'm trying to see if there's any other Michigan. Michigan's the okay. other state, which is a big swing yeah. state where you have the governor for re-election. They so have we're going to know a little bit more about this coming. So out Michigan of and Kentucky are the two. Um, and I, I think that might be it. Yeah, for 2022. Yeah, those are the two. What other other things took out of Tuesday's primaries? Number one, you should really not consider traveling to Arizona anymore. Is that whole state has decided it's going to go insane? So that seems to be a Washington QAnon crazy yes. Trump so Trump hysteria. Twenty twenty. So and this is insane to me because I mean the Republican Party there for the last several years, the head of the party was. Um, her name is escaping me right now. The doctor who took on John McCain and lost, but she's yeah. really insane, like super out there, yeah. like QAnon type. So she's the head of the Republican Party. 
you have the fact that uh, Arizona is a swing state that went blue, has two Democrat senators right now, went for Joe Biden. Yeah. But the Republican Party is just going full board on the crazy Trump train. So you have Carrie Lake, who won the gubernatorial primary. So Doug Ducey, who's a more mainstream Republican, yeah. um, had endorsed her opponent, uh, didn't do any good. She won. And she's a former broadcaster. Yeah. N- news she has anchor. a very put-together TV look and presence about her. But she's also a hypocrite. She was one who Complete was actually an Obama out. supporter yeah. who went from being a Democrat to really just 180-degree change because, again, self-interest. She saw the grift. She saw the opportunity. It's all grift. So she won. You have the Blake Masters, yeah. who was a hand-picked Peter Thiel candidate, who's super crazy. Um, you know, didn't think we should get involved in World War II. I mean, has a lot of crazy positions. He's the Senate candidate now against Mark Kelly. And the Secretary of State candidate, who's Fincham, I believe. Yeah, and he's just said, if Trump don't win the next election, I'll He's not going to certify. Yeah. And so that is scary. And, um, and just to uh, focus on that for a moment, you now have, so the Secretary of State candidates that won on Tuesday and on the Republican side in Arizona – Michigan and Nevada have all three said they would not certify. They both believe the election was stolen. All Trump endorsements think the election was stolen. They're part of the big lie. And they said they would certify if Trump loses in 2024. So let's think about that. That's the highest office in that state that oversees elections being held by people that are profoundly anti-democratic and part of a cult. And we have to kind of throw Pennsylvania in the mix if the Republican for governor wins there because the secretary of state in Pennsylvania is appointed by the governor and the governor, the, uh, the governor, God forbid. I, <laughs> so uh, the Mastriano who's running for governor has already said if he were to win, yeah. he would appoint somebody who wouldn't I mean, ensure Trump. In person. That this, is four key states where you could have denying the 2020 elections. Pretty good strategy in certain spots. But can you imagine if we find ourselves in a place in 2024 where you have a Democrat who again wins Arizona, but the secretary of state doesn't certify. And so you have that entire state's results thrown out or you'd have a constitutional yeah. crisis. That is where we could be. Yeah. And so these states, it's more and more than ever that the Democrat who is running for secretary of state win now against those Republicans. Incidentally enough, Katie Hobbs, who who was the Secretary of State in Arizona, the Democrat, who was took on a very public role in the aftermath of the 2020 uh, controversy with Trump. She is running for governor now. So she's going to be the candidate for the Democrats on the ballot as governor. And so it's an open race for the Secretary of State office. I want to talk about Peter Meyer a little bit. Peter Meyer is the centrist Republican out of Michigan. One of the 10 who voted for impeachment. And in he's, in a, he's in a district that Biden won plus eight, I think. I think plus so, five, yeah. plus eight. He, he's in a Democratic district. He got primaried by a gentleman named Josh Gibbs or John Gibbs. This is a, a gentleman who was in the Trump administration. He is a far-right loon. He is a Trump-endorsed candidate against Peter Meyer. And he's, he's just an absolute moron. He's a 2020 election denier. Just You can look the guy up. He's not worth talking about. He, he's a candidate that the only reason he is there is because Trump put him there. He has no business being anywhere near the U.S. Congress. No qualifications, uh, dangerous philosophy, and I would say somebody is, a, is an absolute worst type of candidate that could run for Congress and is only doing it to grift off the Trump name. Right. Do we agree with, with that's a pretty good assessment of Gibbs? Oh, yeah, completely okay. agree. Yeah, he's in that camp. With all of that said, I am going to stand up for the Democrats pushing him through the primary. And I, I have three kind of primary reasons for, for doing this. One is if the Republicans – well, the Republicans can't come out against this, right? 
because they would be admitting that they're putting up candidates that are not qualified and have no business running for office. So the Republican Party can't come out strong. So they farm it out to the right wing media. Ben Shapiro, Hugh Hewitt, uh, the Fox personalities at night have come off and said, well, how serious are the Democrats through this January 6th committee in saving democracy if they're promoting people that they think are, are dangerous to democracy is basically what the issue is. And John Gibbs certainly is, is one of them. So my arguments for why that's something the Democrats should, should do. Number one, if the Republican Party didn't like it, the Republican Party should do something about it. They should come out and defend the candidates that they want to keep in office. If they think Peter Meyer is worth keeping in that office, they should come out and defend him if the Democrats attack him in a way that they think is unfair. They're choosing not to defend their own candidates. They don't care about this as much as the media seems to because one man has told them not to. So how much should we care about the candidate sinking their choices for somebody that we think we can beat if the Republican Party does not care about their own candidates? Second, Meyer spent $3.2 million on advertising. From what I heard, Gibbs raised very little money and spent almost anything because he didn't run a very effective campaign. The Democrats came in and gave gave uh, Gibbs four hundred thirty five thousand dollars and ran a series of ads that talked about his extreme policies and he was a MAGA person. Again, geared at the Republican side, but clearly something that said he was he he was a radical. Brandon, why did four hundred thirty five thousand dollars worth of ads, which we both can admit is a pittance in today's a drop in the bucket, yeah, turn Republican voters against their champion? Right, the guy everybody likes yeah. because he voted for Trump as a moderate. It only I, took the slightest of pinch <laughs> to point them to somebody who's a total lunatic, and they voted for him. Isn't the real problem with the voters in the Republican primary, not well, what the Democratic Party's doing? Well, it is. Yeah, I think it's again the it had very little to almost no marginal impact on the state of play in that race. Right, Dr- hmm. dime in the bucket. The the bigger problem, as you identified, is with the primary voters, the MAGA voters. That is the base now of the party. That is the problem. So, we, And we, I think, can criticize elected Republicans all day, and I'm happy to do it because they are spineless and they're not leaders. But the, the bigger heart of the matter is that there's an electorate that is fundamentally now anti-democratic on the Republican side and, and pro-MAGA, and that has a change. But all that being said— uh, and I, I would say that it's playing fire with fire. I don't like the idea of Democrats spending. You know, there's limited money to go around, so there's plenty of other places to put that cash, even small amounts, into other races. And I think on any other issue, this, this is the existential crisis of our time, because if there is the chance that you know there'd be some type of, and again, we see how things can change in a flash. Uh, in a period of months, something that would change in a plus five Biden district where that uh, Republican now can run and win, where Diggs, Gibbs can win, like, you know, that would be, again, an, another loss of a seat to somebody who is ju- completely unsuited to hold office in a Democratic Herschel Walker's completely unsuited to run for Senate. Mehmet Oz has no business, no experience, and only wants to steal. What's the difference between Trump appointing those two and us promoting John Gibbs? Well, I think the point is that I think all of those who want to ensure that the next election does not result in voters being disenfranchised should do everything possible to keep the craziest of those 
people out of office, those who are fundamentally in the MAGA camp and anti-democratic and part of the So the when are the deal. Republicans telling Trump he can't run? Well, I'm not arguing for the Republicans. Like yeah. I'm saying here that – I mean they're completely wrong. I'm totally opposed to what the Republicans are doing. I'm just saying point. don't give them leverage. Don't help them along, especially the ones that uh, – because, again, it gets them ever closer to – I would have said the same thing, by the way, um, about Greitens becoming a senator. Like don't yeah. help Greitens get through a primary because even if he does and you can beat him in the general, again, it's playing with fire. But you don't know what could happen. Politics is the process of acquiring political power. It's just been in the last 10 years we've decided it's a zero-sum game and everything's on the board. Both parties decided that. Mitch McConnell was the one who rammed two Supreme Court justices through. One with what, like nine months to go in a term? One with what, 45 days or something like that? Uh, Isn't that the exact same thing that we're doing? My my point is, Uh, if you're not comfortable making politics a blood sport, then what is the process to go guns down? And we, I think we talked about this last week. How do we get back to a truce? Because we're not stopping, my side. Well, and I, your side's not stopping. And I don't have, again, if this were 2014 and it was, you know, Claire McCaskill dumping all of those ads and that pack that was running oh. a, uh, the Todd Aiken, yep. that's very different. I mean, we're, you know, this is at an existential crisis on democracy. Todd Aiken is extreme on abortion. But that's political issue. And by all means, go at it. I just think we're at a place fundamentally where we're at the tipping point where 2024 could result in a vastly different outcome than we saw in 2020. And it also doesn't send a good message. There's a very few number of them left that's ever dwindling. Republicans who are willing to stand up to their own party and, for example, cast an impeachment vote for Trump and knowing that not only can they lose their seats, but the other side is going to hasten and help that happen. You're not going to have any crossover support and trying to retain the basic institutions that we rely on for fair and free elections. I'm just, I'm just using the lesson my Republican friends taught me, that first step is to be at the table and do anything to be at the table. Because if you're not at the table, you can't get anything done. That's what everybody has used as a justification for working for and staying close to Trump. We're just doing the same thing. Brandon, if we, don't, if we don't win the House, how can we do these great things? And if we do win the House, we have to promote some of these people, so be it. I guess what, what aggravates me is folks like Jonah Goldberg and the, the intellectual wing of conservatism who is just so put off by this. And it's like, really? This is the thing you're put off by? There's a thousand different things that in the, on the hypocrisy scale and horrible things that have happened in politics the last 10 years you could pick on. This is the one that you think is out of bounds? I just find that to be incredibly well, hypocritical. Well, I agree. It's not the worst thing in the world. I just find it counterproductive because I think at the end of the day, and, and you keep speaking very much on kind of like standard short-term political gains mm-hmm. type of and, – and I'm saying this is so much more than this. I mean we're, we're beyond you know, typical uh, you know, political gamesmanship. I think that it becomes very difficult because you're not going to defeat Trumpism just with a Democratic majority in the House and Senate. The way you're going to defeat it is either the Republican Party dies and is replaced by a different political party. Which it won't. Or at some point, the calculus is going to change, and you're going to have normal, traditional Republicans regain control of the Republican Party. But that can't happen if you aid in the defeat of anybody who's semi-normal so that they continue to be just replaced by Trumpers. That's not going to happen. 
do you think there's any anything to the defense of Joe Biden is going to be impeached if the Republicans win the House? That that's a foregone conclusion. I, I think so. We will yeah. do anything to keep the House in order for that not to happen because it's not right. Would that justify giving money to Gibbs? I I mean I don't think that would necessarily justify. I guess from my standpoint, if that's a predetermined outcome, I mean. I, you're saying because it won't have any impact anyway that he's going to be impeached, so you might what, as well. What I'm saying, if 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 the Democrat, if I'm leading the DNC and people are yelling at me about this, what I tell them is, do you think Biden's going to get impeached? If you answer yes, I'm like, doesn't every vote count? If we could do this to three candidates and hold our ground in the House and maybe not impeach Biden, isn't it worth it? Again, we're in a zero sum game for power. What? What rules are we violating here? What shouldn't we do to keep that from happening? Because you know what's going to happen. 2023 is going to be a brutal year for Joe Biden personally. Because the first thing the House is going to do is open the Hunter Biden investigation. And that's going to be a two-year ordeal. Then they're going to impeach him. You're telling me that as the leader of the DNC, I can make a case to my constituents that we shouldn't spend that 450k to maybe prevent a seat from that happening because why but i mean that you know the that's making the assumption that that seat could be the margin between democratic or republican control we have four seats now it's going to be even tighter if we keep it I, I don't think that one seat is going to determine the outcome though there's plenty of other seats on the margins that Democrats need to invest in that won't give them the bad headlines or the accusations of hypocrisy when it yeah. comes to saying that this is an existential crisis, but not enough to where we're not going to try to defeat a pro-impeachment Republican. The average party who owns all three mem- branches of government at a midterms loss in Congress is 27 seats. I think the Dems can do much better than that, and I think this is part of that strategy. And if this yields one seat, so be it. To me, it's worth it because this is just the game. This is the game we're playing. And my ultimate defense is just to look at the Republicans and say, this is on you. Stop nominating these people. This process would stop. We'll see. You know who you're nominating. You know these people are dangerous. Don't put them up there and this process goes to an end. I I will add, though, that uh, James Carville and David Axelrod agree with my position. (laughs) But but again, I understand where you're coming from. I understand that. I I do want to point to Washington State. So uh, one of the pro-impeachment Republicans was able to make it through, Dan Newhouse. Mm -hmm. The other, Jamie Herrera Butler. Uh, So she is in the fight of her life. They're still counting votes there. I think she's hanging on by like a 100-vote lead over her her crazy MAGA Republican opponent. uh, His name is a guy named Joe Kent. He is a former police officer, part of a militia, has basically said that he wants people arrested and executed. Like, he's super out there crazy. It remains to be seen whether or not she can hang on, but I will say that if both of them end up hanging on and facing Democrats in the fall, it will be because uh, Washington State went to this jungle primary system where everybody runs in one primary. So for their congressional seats, all the Democrats, all the Republicans ran in one big primary, and it's a top two vote-getters in advance. So, you know, theoretically, you could have two Democrats or two Republicans advance. But what this has happened is it will most likely have the Democrat advance with the pro-impeachment Republican, which is something you wouldn't have seen happen if it had just been individual Republican yeah. or Democrat primary. So I say that I'm a big proponent of electoral reform, um, and I do think jungle primaries are a good step yeah. to that, that 
in the absence of being able to go full board into ranked choice voting, jungle primaries are a good option. I completely agree that we need to redo the primaries. Because jungle go- primaries tend to produce yeah. voters that are more moderate, more mainstream, less of the crazy. It's it's a good way to, to do that. And I'm glad to see states like Washington, Alaska has that coming up yeah. with their Senate race, which also, not just their Senate race, their House race. So the latest polling shows that it looks like Sarah Palin isn't going to make it yeah, through. Yeah, she's going to make it. And it's because of this new system. Like, this system works, and I would like to see she, more states have the, it. The last cynical point on this. I don't mind this in the house because house members a single house member is very very ineffectual yeah look at aoc yeah you you can run your mouth all you want aoc matt gates marjorie taylor green you can have a kooky that the house has a long history full of kooks there's very little damage they can do right what the republicans are doing in the senate is completely unforgivable with the people trump is running Oh, and yeah. I have no problem doing this in in the House when that's happening in the Senate, where one candidate can do one senator can do a whole lot. It's a whole lot different on in in the Senate. And what Trump's doing with Walker is embarrassing. Oh and yeah, the entire Republican Party should be ashamed of of what they're doing for that. So I don't I don't I agree with Axelrod and Carville. No problems with this at all. Let's do more of it. Yeah. If it wins us seats, that's what we got to do. And even in places, I would I would argue it's very difficult, almost impossible for a Democrat to win Alaska at this point. Yeah. But hey, I mean, getting uh, retaining Lisa Murkowski, who voted for impeachment over a crazy MAGA yeah. person, is preferable. So you may see that there. Or, for example, in Utah, where you have Evan McMullen, who's an independent, running yeah. with Democratic support against uh, uh, Mike Lee. Yeah. And so they're neck and neck in polling. Again, don't know that that's going to happen. Probably won't. But if it can and if it's likely to be close, that's a more preferable outcome in a state where a Democrat can't win. So I would like to see more of this where we're smart and strategic and looking at who we can put up, who's going to be the most pro-democracy, most likely to ensure that they're not going to overturn the system, especially in states where, you know, one party may not be viable. Like, that's what we should be doing. Let's end with, you, you sent me a text this week and said, if you're not watching the Alex Jones trial, <laughs> you, you really need to. Wow. And yeah. I found it and it did not disappoint. Wow. So, yeah, Alex Jones, because this has been years, you know, that he has not faced any accountability for all of the lies, all of the crazy yeah. conspiracy theories. The Sandy Hook was just one of many, but it was the most, it has resonated the most because that was school children, very much like you, Volley, who were gunned down. And you had Alex Jones for years who has claimed that that was a false flag operation, that it was deep state, it was all uh, actors, you know, and crisis actors, none of it was real. And so he's being sued for defamation. And to see those parents in court, like showing the pictures of their child, like, look, this is my child, this person was real, and calling him to task and on the carpet. But what got me is that this guy is so arrogant that in court he continued to lie. He had to be reminded by the judge that he was perjuring himself and he needed to stop, that the courtroom was not his show. Has he never watched TV? Has he never watched Law & Order? Everybody knows how to testify. You answer the question that's asked to you. Every time his lawyer would ask a question, he'd just monologue. And half the time the judge would be, that's a lie. You can't (laughs) say that. You you can't... 
Well, and I mean, he really is. I mean, I consider human scum. I mean, he's the he, bottom he's of the barrel. He's awful. Guy. He's scum. But it was just enlightening to me. There was one point where the attorney for the parents asked him point blank about the fact that because he's been. At, you know, at this trial, and then after the daily hearings, he's going out on a show and claiming mm-hmm. that this is rigged against him. And, it's all false. And, and I don't. I want, I want to pause. What you just said. He still goes on his shows today. Infowars.com and is able to spew a bunch of shit to millions of yes. people. Okay, just just want to make sure if this is about a free speech trial. Alex Jones's free speech rights have not been really infringed upon. Yeah, I and I get maybe it's because it's not a criminal trial, but there's no gag order against him, which really, no. for a lot of people he, there are. They have gag orders. They but, can't talk about. It, no, no. If I'm the prosecutor, no, 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 no gag order. No, run your mouth, Jones. Yeah. Th- that every time you say something, my case gets stronger. So the attorney for the parents said, "So did you like go on your sh- uh, show and depict this graphic of the, the the judge burning in flames?" And he denied it. And then they showed the graphic at court, and he. Had had to agree. So again, he, he's lying. An idiot. I mean, it's just it's what, on what and a, on. What, 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 what's fascinating to me about the Alex Jones, the whole situation is there is no First Amendment free speech issue here. No, to me, this works exactly how it's supposed to work. Alex Jones did something completely out of bounds culturally. That now people are reacting to. He's free to give that speech, but Correct. he's held accountable for it. Brandon, did anybody defamation. tell Alex Jones you can't go on the air and tell people no. that no? No, he chose to do that because he chose to do that. Apple and YouTube, they all decided to drop him, which is a choice they are completely within their rights to make. And then the parents decided to sue him, which the court said he's violated enough civil law. You have the right to do that. Everybody's getting out of this. Everybody's playing the part and everybody is everybody is playing the free speech part they should be playing. If Alex Jones wants to keep on talking his way into bankruptcy and obscurity, uh, nobody's nobody's infringing that right. Just, and he, it just doesn't mean Apple doesn't have to put his podcast on. Right. YouTube doesn't put. That's the way. Infowars.com, folks. You can see him. You can look. You can. I think he said he does four to six hours of live um, uh, podcasting, like a, a day. Oh you yeah. You can still see him, folks. He's now on nowhere. And, and this is a guy. I mean, he made eight hundred thousand in one day alone. His That's estimated net worth is between one hundred twenty-five to two hundred fifty million dollars. He has a lot of money. So, contrary to his claims that this would make him go bankrupt, it's classic. a lie. But it was interesting because even his statements, he referred to the jury on his show as uh, small-minded blue-collar yeah, people. Uh, uh, I mean, he he referred. There's a dad of one of the victims who speaks very slowly and very deliberately, like enunciates his every word. He referred to that dad as slow and mocked him for his speech patterns. I mean, this is just, I mean, he's doing himself no favors. He's already a vile human being. But I mean, at this point, like you said, let him talk away because he's digging his own grave. Just let him go. Joe Rogan came out and talked about, you know, he's not really hurting anybody. Can he get like the the, the comedic's pass? He's just saying funny stuff. No, he's not. No, there's nothing funny about that. And it's resulted in harm. These parents have been harassed for years, have had death threats against them. the line. Yeah. A line still exists. Alex Jones has an audience, which is diehard, and those people have been shown that they will believe his every word, and they will go after people that he attacks on his show. If you want to make $200 million talking about how the, the, 
the trail off plane wings is a chemical the government puts out that makes frogs gay or whatever, which I think was one of his core. Not, not, nobody cares. Knock yourself out. We'll think that's funny. We'll reward you with a media empire. That, 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 that's great. When you cross over to kids, though, that's not something we're willing to grift on. Yeah. And this is what happens. And for those that it's don't a know, clear message that needs to be sent. I mean, this is just one of many. I mean, he basically claims every mass shooting is a plot to take yes. away guns. He claimed 9 11 was an inside job, that our government did that. He has a whole history going back decades where he has made outlandish claims so for those that don't know this is just one of many i mean he it's it's not even about comedy it's about claims that are so far out there and there's people that believe them and there's people that act on them and that's what this is about jones used what we call the three two three two one method three absolute lies two things that are false but could plausibly be true in one fact yeah. And you just keep, and you keep, every yeah. time you give information, you keep giving it in that order. And with the cadence that he does, people get so confused. It's hard to separate what's a lie, what's true, what might be true. Right. And because he tells the one truth in the middle of all of those lies, that does not make him. It doesn't some negate. Sort of, no, it doesn't negate said. anything that he does either civilly or, or criminally. It also lets you know too, and this gets back to why Trump probably is not going to be charged. It's really hard to charge somebody criminally with something they say. It's almost impossible to do it. I mean, Alex Jones, this is a civil trial. This is not a criminal trial. Right. So, being criminally charged for your words, very, very difficult in, in the United States, as it, as it should be. Yeah. So, Brandon, we went a little long. There's no fun stuff to talk about. No. I mean, there was so Unless much packed into the last week. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It does seem like the past two weeks, summer doldrums have died out, and uh, the political scene here is kicking up. And it is. Once we hit September... Now we're in re-election season. I will say I did see the movie Bullet Train over the weekend. Is that pretty good? It was. It's very entertaining. It's fun. It moves very fast. I mean, it's not like it's not something that's going to captivate your mind. It's more of an escapist yeah. movie. But it is fun. It has a lot of celebrity cameos in it. And it's a little bit confusing at first because it moves so fast. To put this in perspective, the train is moving the entire time, and basically almost the whole film takes place on this very fast moving train from one car to the next. So, I mean, if you blink, you can miss something, but it is entertaining. I do recommend it. <sighs> Brad Pitt was a bucket hat in that movie, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. And he looks really good at it. He does. Yeah. That I hate that. <laughs> Brad Pitt's my age. Obviously I know Brad Pitt and I don't look a lot alike and he can wear a bucket hat. <laughs> I didn't know he was your him. age. Okay. He's like 50. I think he's older than me actually. Oh, okay. Which totally sucks. But Brad Pitt's <laughs> one of those guys just, genetically perfect, always looks good, can wear and do anything. What he As wants, he gets yeah. older, he just seems to look better and chicks love him He more, does, so. yeah. He's one of those that doesn't yeah. really age and he just can continue yeah. doing what he wants. I want to take the haters going to hate philosophy on Brad Pitt because it just yeah. hits a little too close to home. That's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.